I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On the next episode of The Trade Guys, we'll talk Davos, sectoral trade approaches, and what the U.S. has cooking with Taiwan on trade, all on this next episode of The Trade Guys. Gentlemen, welcome back to this episode of Trade Guys. And we've got a lot to talk about, specifically following Davos. Trade generated a fair amount of news at Davos in Switzerland, which included a WTO mini ministerial on the sidelines of the conference. What can we tell about trade policy coming out of Davos? Well, you know, I was I was chastised in my column this week for making fun of Davos, but I'm unrepentant. <laughs> Davos is fun to make fun of, I think. I think so, too. It's a bunch of CEOs and other types of billionaires and media people standing around freezing their behinds off at like the coldest time in the coldest place. And they jam in like 10 meetings a day. And so I get it, but I don't know. I think most of them are self-congratulatory about how they're all saving the world. And I, my comment back to my chastiser was that there's been a number of, of news stories that have suggested basically big talk, no action. You know, people have great conferences, great meetings, give great speeches, and then everybody go out, goes off and forgets about it. Well, you know what I hear from, so I've never been to Davos and don't have any real desire to go and freeze my behind off there. But although, you know, I'm starting to get into the Wim Hof thing where being cold is like really good for you and reduces inflammation, but that's a whole other conversation. Thing about Davos that I've heard from people who go there is that most people spend their time looking around at whatever meeting they're in and thinking, maybe I should be at another meeting or am I missing something? Looking around to see who else is there. People looking for a better deal. Yeah. They're meeting shopping. If you want to be cold, Andrew, there are closer places to go than Davos. Oh, yeah. Go north to Canada. Oh, yeah. Or like Johnny Horton, north to Alaska. Anyway, the mini ministerial is a tradition. They have had one there for multiple years. And because trade ministers usually come to Davos, and so it's a good opportunity to get together. And they had one this time with good reason, because the next uh, ministerial is only a little more than a year away. It's scheduled for the end of February of 2024 in Abu Dhabi. Uh, And so planning has already begun. 13 months is going to go by very quickly. And I mean, nothing happens quickly in WTO land, but 13 months is 13 months. And so they're starting to get ready. One big topic, a little bit surprisingly, because it's perennial, uh, because nothing ever happens, uh, is agriculture. And there is a renewed effort among WTO ambassadors to at least say that agriculture is really important and we need to have a negotiation on it. Now, of course, they've been saying that for 30 years and uh, have not been able to move the ball forward on agriculture because countries have very different ideas of what an agricultural agreement should look like. But there are serious issues there. And for many countries, agriculture is a huge part of their economy and a huge trade issue. It's a big trade issue for the United States. You know, we 
used to have a surplus in agriculture. I think last year, I, if we did, it was much smaller. We may actually have had a deficit, but it is still in a significant element of, of export for us, even though we're primarily a services economy. For developing economies, it's, it's the main thing. And getting breaking down barriers, particularly uh, what's referred to as SPS, sanitary and phytosanitary barriers, which means basically standards for food safety and things like that, and, and regularizing them. There is an international entity that, that does this and getting countries to adhere to those standards and not using their own standards as protectionist barriers and getting rid of subsidies. Most countries, including the United States, subsidize their agriculture massively. These are really important goals. So that was very much on the agenda. Cleanup from the last conference, ministerial conference was on the agenda. The big item being fish. Uh, you'll recall that they reached a fisheries agreement at MC12 last June, or I guess it was June. And uh, that was significant, but it wasn't as much as it could be because the biggest chunk of the potential agreement that dealt with, you know, overcapacity and massive subsidies in areas that are related to fishing rather than direct subsidies to fishermen, which they did deal with. That part was dropped. Uh, and there's a significant effort to try to recapture that and restart those negotiations, which are supposed to be ongoing. But right now, and at Davos, the group was preoccupied also simply with getting everybody to ratify the first agreement, you know, because, you know, it was done with much fanfare. But the dirty little secret is it doesn't count until two thirds of the 164 members adopt, you know, use whatever their internal government procedure is to adopt it. And until last week, nobody had done that. Last week, we had number one, which was Switzerland. And you can chuckle at that. Switzerland is not a major fishing power, although they do have large lakes. But, you know, the Swiss Navy is kind of a standing joke in diplomatic circles. It's probably, they probably do not have very large fishing fleets. Uh, although, as I think you, Andrew, pointed out, they won the America's Cup once. Or maybe that was Scott that pointed that out. It was Scott. Yes, the, the, there's a yachting club in Geneva that, that was the home of the, the uh, yacht that won America's Cup. And probably got a lot of experience on Lake Geneva, which is a big lake. And I've been there a decent amount of wind. Well, you know, they make great watches that go really well on captain's wrists that look really good when you're out there sailing. So it kind of makes sense. Anyway, it's not a joke. It's serious. And I think that I, the, I just right before we're recording this was at a virtually at a conference on how to move fisheries along. And and one of the speakers who was from the WTO infrastructure said, you know, the big hope is that Switzerland will prime the pump. That number one, having done it, now there will be numbers two through, you know, 120 or whatever it takes to get to two thirds, 108, something like that. And that this, maybe they've started the movement. We'll see, but it's important. You know, these things don't count until countries take the necessary internal steps to do them. And the United States hasn't done anything as far as I know. So, you know, we can look to ourselves before we complain about anybody else. Well, look, Bill's right about unfinished business, agriculture being the primary unfinished business. And my recollection doesn't go all the way back, but certainly about 20 years ago, the negotiations on agriculture subsidies lost momentum. And uh, one of the reasons American agriculture got frustrated and, and at that point in time was they just couldn't get any, they've been trying to get access to 
say, Europe and other places uh, for a long time, were willing to deal with subsidies if they could get some market access. And there was never a deal that could come together. Now, fortunately for American agriculture about that time, the East Asia and the Pacific, including China, uh, you had millions upon millions of people improving their diet. And that created demand for American farm products, soybeans to feed the pigs, pork, corn, wheat, you name it. Uh, there, there, was, there was huge demand, which bolstered prices and made them forget about the disappointments in, at the negotiating table. Well, 20 years on, that's leveled off. The population is actually declining in China now. The growth in food sales from the United States export sales has flattened off. And uh, people would like these rules that still haven't been brought to bear on the trading system. So that's an important unfinished piece of business. But you know, look, the World Economic Forum has been the butt of a lot of jokes. But so has the WTO. I mean, it's the, the jokes somewhat write themselves. And I was teasing Bill about the uh, about the Swiss fleet of trawlers that's willing to accept the disciplines on fish subsidies. I'm from Ohio, and I'm just a transplant to North Carolina. But the Southerners have an expression, bless their hearts. <laughs> this is kind of a, oh, bless their hearts kind of moment. They're accepting disciplines on subsidies that they don't have. But there's a lot of that going on. I mean, if you look at the, the comments of the director general of the WTO about what a great organization is, she's talking about legally binding agreements. But we haven't had a functioning dispute settlement for five years or so. All right. At the end of the day, rather than, rather than poke fun at the WTO, I would just make the point that and we talked a lot about geopolitics and how that affects policy, particularly in these large multilateral organizations. But domestic politics are a factor as well. And the WTO at its best was functioning when the big traders, in this case, it was the United States, Europe, and Japan, and some important others, but those were the big import markets at the time. The big traders all wanted to liberalize. This in the mid-90s, uh, the U.S. had just uh, had the big peace dividend, just won the Cold War, wanted to had major advantages in, in technology and production technology and services that were growing rapidly. And they wanted a rules-based system. Europe, likewise, was in the middle of sort of the, the single market expansion, which was very good for trade, very good for the rules. And the WTO was seen as a helpful way to accomplish what they were trying to do in their own domestic politics. And what we have now is a change in domestic politics and all the big traders. So well, we have climate change to deal with. Climate change tends to be, uh, you know, this is industrial policy and subsidies and the kinds of things that these big traders weren't for, in fact, put in disciplines against 20 years ago. And so for me, the, the, the important characteristic, I would love to get back to agriculture, but we got to be realistic about the domestic politics of the big traders, which now includes China, and whether or not problems can be solved that are in harmony with the domestic politics of the big traders. Otherwise, nothing's going to move. Well, bless both of your hearts, I should just say. Well, you know, I mean, you're talking about the WTO director general. You know, at Davos, she actually argued that the WTO is one of the only multilateral organizations actually delivering on multilateralism. Do you guys agree with her? Well, it's a low bar. I give her a lot of credit. I mean, she's doing the best she can. Uh, she produced a, a multilateral conference that did produce two multilateral agreements. I mean, they were small cheese, but they were better than it's been happening first since 2015. And she's been really good, I think, at, at focusing the developing countries on a constructive path forward, which has not always happened. And there are some signs, I think we talked about this before, that, that 
the developing countries are beginning to stand up to the Indians, who have been the country that has torpedoed a lot of these negotiations over the years. So moving in the right direction. Um, and keep in mind, you know, it is the one international organization that has a dispute settlement mechanism. Flawed, inoperable in part, you know, but it still, it still functions. There are panels. They still hear cases. They still come out with decisions. And a number of cases, countries are complying with the decision. Flawed and damaged, but still there. And a lot more than anybody else has. You know, go to the ILO, the International Labor Organization. They got nothing like that. Although they've got a boatload of labor problems. I think they do a good job. And I think the, the director general is right to defend her organization. But it's time to get to work on what the members care about. Because nothing's going to move unless they do. And uh, for me, the big unmet need is some non-trade distorting disciplines on climate change policy that the big traders want to accomplish and the developing countries are going to be part of the supply chain for. That's where the minerals are being extracted. And nobody at the WTO is talking about that. We're talking about things that aren't happening, uh, like agriculture or things that are stuck, like dispute settlement. And nobody's talking about what's coming. If she wants the organization to be able to be multilateralism at its best 10 years from now, we need to start focusing on the problems that people actually have and where they can find common ground working together. All right, guys. Well, let's let's stick around in Switzerland for a minute because Switzerland and the U.S. just inked a mutual recognition agreement on pharmaceuticals. What exactly is a mutual recognition agreement and why are they important to trade? Well, look, it's a it's basically an agreement between parties who have regulatory uh, operations that they'll accept each other's regulatory uh, decisions at the most basic level. In this case, it's a it's a mutual recognition agreement on good practices in pharmaceuticals. And it turns out both Switzerland and the United States have strong pharmaceutical organizations, many of which are cross-invested between the two. The regulatory apparatus, the Food and Drug Administration here and the Swiss authorities are both known to be science-based. They have a very high standard process for approvals. Uh, they have great safety records. Okay, so this was in some ways uh, a, a good step forward. Basically, the way to think about this in non-technical uh, terms is if it's approved in one market, it's uh, deemed to be approved in the other. So they mutually recognize their practice, the industry practices. So, so this, is, this is a precursor to a potential trade deal? Well, it's a component of regulatory harmonization which often is part of trade agreements. It, it, trade, trade agreements would deal with tariffs, would deal with a broader range of, of subjects. Uh, and, but technical standards uh, are one of them that trade agreements do deal with. And this is, this is a single sector between two countries. So good start. Well, yeah, let me interrupt there. First of all, don't get too excited about a larger trade agreement with the Swiss. We tried that right. twice. Uh, once in the Bush administration and then once uh, the George W. Bush administration and then once actually under the Trump administration, believe it or not. Uh, and neither time uh, got very far down the road. In the first case, it was really the Swiss who decided that they were not prepared to make concessions on agriculture that the U.S. was expecting. Um, and in the second case, it, it just never got very far. And then uh, Biden was, re uh, was elected and the Biden administration is not really interested in, in classic free trade agreements. So don't hold your breath for that. But a sectoral approach 
this may have legs. You know, you do it in one country, you may do it in others. I'm not sure it goes quite as far as Scott said. I think in practical terms, this particular agreement is mostly about accepting each other's test results. You know, if you're going to approve a drug, uh, it's got to go through a, a fairly rigorous testing process to make sure it's safe and that, A, it does what it's supposed to do, and B, people don't die as a side effect. You know, in the United States, the Food and Drug Administration does that, and Swiss ha the Switzerland has a comparable regulatory institution that does that. And it's really about accepting each other's test results, because if you don't accept each other's test results, that means for companies, you have to do it all twice. Uh, and you have to develop a testing regime in the United States that goes through all these, you know, it takes some time to figure out, you know, if the, if the drugs work uh, and if they don't kill anybody. And then if you want to do it, uh, get it approved in country B, uh, you have to do the same thing all over again. So if you can accept each other's test results, you save steps, you, you save money, and you most importantly for sick people, you save time. You don't have right. to spend an extra, you know, year or two, you know, having uh, test trials somewhere else just to see what happens. You know, the ideal system would, would be one that goes farther than that, which is harmonization, uh, in which case both countries adopt the same standard and the same health standard, which means then you get exactly what Scott said. Approval in country A means automatically approval in country B because the standards are the same. Well, having the common dossier, common dossier or the common filing in the pharmaceutical industry is very important because there are, all pharmaceuticals have human trials at the end. Uh, they're the state, they're phase three trials in US FDA speak, but human trials are an important part of it. Those, as Bill points out, are very time consuming, expensive, and you don't want to run more of them than you have to, to establish the safety and efficacy of the drug. Uh, so it, it is a great simplification. Uh, it's one of those things, it's kind of the great white whale of every globally engaged business executive because you'd really like to do it. I, Procter & Gamble, had a, when I worked for them, had a tiny drug business, so I was familiar with the FDA drug approval process. But we had a much bigger cosmetics business, things like shampoo. Uh, in uh, East Asia and the Pacific, it was a big growing business. Uh, most companies benefit from the scale you can get. And what we faced was we had basically regional production systems for making, say, shampoo. We had regional customers. The, the retailers were, had regional operations. We had satellite TV, so you had regional advertising. But you had 16 to 43 different country approval processes for the same shampoo. You know? And once again, this is cosmetics are, are a lot safer and a lot easier to demonstrate safety than our novel pharmaceuticals. But we could never get there. And that was, that was almost always what was the critical path item in launching a new product or a, an improvement to one of our existing products was getting the regulatory clearances done in every single country. So it's a dream. It's not going to happen. Uh, and it certainly hasn't happened yet. But this is a step. It is important. You know, with my shampoo, I want to make sure it, it doesn't make my hair fall out. I mean, that ship has mostly sailed, but it's still something to worry about. <laughs> well, guys, I, I guess the larger question here is, are we living in an era of sectorals like this one as opposed to, you know, bigger FTAs? Yeah, look, Bill's right. This is the way you trade negotiators take lemons and make lemonade. Right. And you can do it on products like the Swiss and U.S. agreeing on pharmaceuticals, so a sectoral approach. 
or, or information technology, you can do it uh, regionally as well. Recall there was great fanfare in the 90s after the completion of the NAFTA of a free trade area of the Americas, which by the time it fell apart, the negotiators were forced to look at it other ways. And, and at that time, it was the George W. Bush administration uh, in uh, USTR, uh, starting with Bob Zellick, looked for a series of bilaterals or a, a, the Central America Free Trade Agreement as a way to get the liberalization that was available and avoid the pitfalls of the free trade area of the Americas. So you can do it a number of different ways, but you know it's, it's what a practical savvy trade negotiator does for a living. So seeing more of it means we'll see some progress instead of just stasis. It's timely because and it raises an interesting legal question because it has come up just this week uh, in the context of the Inflation Reduction Act. And, you know, listeners will recall when we've talked about this in the electric vehicle tax credit, one of the restrictions on the tax on the full tax credit is that your minerals have to come from either the United States or countries with which we have a free trade agreement. And Congress did not elaborate on what free trade agreement means for purposes of this provision. And while that addresses the Koreans' concern, at least with respect to this particular provision, uh, it doesn't take care of Japan or Europe, with whom we don't have things that are considered trade agreements. And Secretary Yellen was very clear about this, that there is a, a, a bilateral agreement with Japan, which she said doesn't count. Uh, and we don't have one with Europe. So there's nothing to count there. But now she has suggested, and there's been talk about, maybe we should make a minerals deal with the EU and a minerals deal with Japan. And that will count as a free trade agreement for purposes of the statute. We'll see. I mean, I'm, I, it may be harder to do that than people think, particularly with Europe. We haven't been able to negotiate uh, very much with Europe over the years. We did a deal on lobsters, as I recall, in the Trump administration. But so maybe there's hope for minerals. Does that count as a, quote, free trade agreement, unquote, that Congress intended in the Inflation Reduction Act? We'll see. I'm sure the proponents uh, of the language uh, will sue and argue that it does not. But this whole issue is very much on the table. If you can't get the whole pie, go for a slice. The old lobster sectoral is really, you know... <laughs> That, that could be a name of a band, Lobster Sectoral. Yes. Yeah, they'd have to go back in time for that to be uh, a great band name, but it's a pretty good one. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, let's talk about Asia for just a minute here. We've talked a lot about IPEF, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, uh, in the last 12 months. We've talked a lot less about the U.S.-Taiwan Initiative on 21st Century Trade. The U.S. and Taiwan met recently to talk trade. Can you remind us what this bilateral negotiation seeks to achieve? Well, it's been in existence uh, in, in various forms for a long time. It started off uh, as a trade and investment framework agreement, or a TIFA, that was basically a talking shop for several administrations. I, my recollection is that goes back to the, to the Clinton administration. Uh, so we've, we've been talking to Taiwan for a long time. Now, Taiwan is a member of the WTO, and they acceded to the WTO in the 1990s. I think they joined the same day as, uh, or their accession package was approved the same day as mainland China was. So 
there was some there was some political deafness at foot there, but but they are a member of the WTO, and and because of they the, the period in which they joined, Taiwan's a relatively open market at least in terms of industrial goods, uh, because most of the parties that joined in the nineties uh, made serious commitments to lowering tariffs on industrial goods. So there's there's a there's some work to be done, not a lot. The the holdup in the trade and investment framework agreement has always been agriculture, and particularly agriculture standards, uh, which wind up excluding a lot of U.S. products. And uh, we're suspicious of the degree to which they're science based. That's where the conversations is focused. So the old issue uh, is is agriculture and particularly the safety standards, or what's called sanitary and phytosanitary standards for agriculture. The other issues that the, the Biden administration has tabled are essentially the new issues that affect services and electronic communication and those kinds of areas, which are good and useful. Uh, they don't want to negotiate tariffs, which I'm not sure why it's a problem at this point. Uh, the, the, the U.S. has high tariffs on, on items where there's very little trade, like cheap footwear and, and, uh, and apparel and uh, light industrial goods that are mostly imported anyway. And maybe there's some opportunity in Taiwan, but that it's like completely off the table. Now, if you want a reciprocal tariff negotiation, you're going to need the Congress. So there's that's part of the wrinkle. But practically speaking, this is not a bad package. I think the agriculture community would be happy with rules that actually worked uh, on the on the food safety side. So it looks a little better. Optics are a little better than the TIFA, which was a, a table where nobody agreed to anything. Is designed to parallel the, the IPEF. Uh, the topics that they have said they're going to address are trade facilitation, good regulatory practices, anti-corruption, uh, small and medium-sized enterprises, agriculture standards, digital trade, labor environment, state-owned enterprises, and non-market policies and practices. Uh, and that's pretty much the the IPEF list as well. It's I think it, it's kind of a mixed bag for Taiwan. They wanted to be in IPEF very badly, but the main reason they wanted to be in is because they wanted the, the recognition that they're a separate independent country that comes along with participating in these things, uh, and which was precisely the reason why a number of the other IPEF participants were reluctant to let them in because they didn't want to irritate China. So instead, uh, Taiwan gets its own negotiation uh, over the same stuff. And I told the Taiwanese at one point, aside from the recognition issue, which is of primary importance, you may actually end up getting a better deal than you would have gotten in IPEF. Because I think on the terms of the agreement, I think the U.S. is disposed to be helpful um, and is disposed to try to accommodate Taiwanese interests in, in this negotiation. And uh, we'll see what they want. But I think it may very well end up being you know, within its terms a more favorable agreement for Taiwan than they would have gotten as part of IPEF, where they just would be one of, well, 15 if they had joined. So, you know, we'll see how it plays out. It's early days. They have not tackled the hard things yet, like uh, digital, and they've had discussions. Agriculture will be a big issue. For a long time, the stumbling block to more intensive trade relations was uh, uh, Taiwan's ban on on pork that contained uh, ractopamine, which is a growth hormone. They have since, uh, in a rather, rather a daring move for Taiwan, uh, for the Taiwan government, they've eliminated their ban, 
which and then put in uh, label, labeling requirements uh, and, and sanitary and phytosanitary standards, which probably accomplished the same thing. But it, what it did was very clever because what it did was remove the excuse the U.S. was using to not have more detailed trade negotiations with Taiwan. Uh, we don't have that excuse anymore. And now we're having a more meaningful negotiation. So clever move by the Taiwanese. We'll see where it goes. All right, gentlemen. Well, this has been a great discussion. Thank you very much for all of these insights. And we will be back with you next week. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys@csis.org. That's tradeguys@csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.